Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious. Planning a dream trip to Italy? Don't go without exploring italybeyondtheobvious.com. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined at my house in Seattle by Joshua Hammer. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. He's also written for The New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, The Atlantic, and others. And he's also an expat, currently living in Berlin. Is that right? Yeah, for many years, actually, and since 2007. Oh, we'll have to talk about that a little bit. But today he joins me to talk about his latest book, which is called The Falcon Thief, A True Tale of Adventure, Treachery, and the Hunt for the Perfect Bird. So it's interesting that you're joining me in Seattle right now because last week's episode, we actually talked about going on quests and how you make a quest for yourself. And this book, The Falcon Thief, is sort of a story of you going on a quest yourself. Yeah. I like to think of it as a story of obsession. There's both the obsession of my two main protagonists, the villain and the, I guess you could call him the hero. Mm -hmm. And then there was my own deepening obsession about following the trail of uh, the, well, in particular, the outlaw character who I focus on, the um, eponymous falcon thief of the book. Yeah. Maybe we should set the scene. Take us to where this adventure starts. Uh, so this adventure started in early 2017 where I, when I was on a vacation with um, my kids in London. And I was in a coffee shop in Hampstead and I just picked up the Times of London lying around on a table and just flipped through it. And there was this article caught my eye. It was buried in the back pages of the paper and it was maybe three or four paragraphs long. And the headline, as I can remember, it was Falcon Thief is Back on the Wing. And the story, in a nutshell, it mentioned that there was this character named Jeffrey Lendrum who uh, had become notorious for robbing the nests of uh, rare falcons around the world, including using helicopters and rappelling down cliffs, selling these eggs, wild live eggs, to um, wealthy sheikhs in the, uh, in the Persian Gulf for their falconry. It went on to say that he had been arrested in Brazil while attempting to smuggle out albino peregrine eggs captured in Patagonia and had been sentenced to four and a half years in prison and had jumped bail and was on the loose and nobody knew where he was and um, there was fear that he was going to go back to the UK where he had committed previous raids and and start plundering the peregrine falcon population of Great Britain again so environmentalists were vigilant Anyway, <laughs> whether or not that was a you know that was alarmist or whatever, it was still there were enough elements in that in those few paragraphs to really intrigue me. I've been looking for a new book subject, and almost instantly, I just felt there's there's got to be some story here worth probing, and whether it be for a magazine, which I write for a lot, or perhaps for a book, we'll find out as we get deeper into it. So, when I got home, I began to call around and quickly sold a magazine piece to Outside Magazine, where I'm a, I've been a contributing editor for 20 years. It eventually led to a book, actually very quickly, almost simultaneously, the book 
and magazine pieces came together. Is that because once you started looking at it, you realized like what a big story it could be? Or Yeah, kind of because I realized that I could go in a lot of different directions. And one of my a writer who I greatly admire and who I actually um, knew quite well many years ago when we both lived in New York is Susan Orlean. And um, so Susan's books, The Orchid Thief, the new book, the library book, both... Uh, you know, they have a crime as a sort of central element, which provides a kind of narrative, you know, narrative drive. But they also allow her to venture off into a lot of obscure corners and subcultures and history, science, whatever. I, I, I saw this book as having that same potential. You have that narrative story of this crazy villain, globetrotting thief, and in a world that I knew very little about but that seemed to be just rich in, in side alleys you could venture down. Yeah, it's interesting because the even just the revelation of, of course, we hear a lot about trafficking in rhino horns or elephant tusks and all this stuff, but even the idea that there are people scaling off the side of mountains trying to grab eggs and moving them about the world while trying to keep them warm is sort of a strange thought to, to realize. As I mentioned in the introduction to the book, it... It immediately made me think of um, the Dr. Seuss, you know, classic scrambled egg super about that guy, Peter T. Hooper, who embarks on all of these insane expeditions in search of the uh, the eggs of fictitious birds. You know, <laughs> my kids love the book. And yeah, so I, I kind of I had three, I have three sons and I read that book to all of them. And I don't know, it was it was sort of, wow, you know, a real life Peter T. Hooper going off to these crazy corners of the planet pursuing these the eggs of weird birds i mean it's crazy and it's true i love how you open the book too you introduce this guy with him getting caught once while attempting to do this can you lay out yeah. that opening scene that's the story that i've been telling on my uh, on my book tour to get people immediately interested and it seems to work uh so, <laughs> so try it here <laughs> okay so there's a vigilant janitor at the Emirates Airlines First Class and Business Lounge in Birmingham Airport in the UK. And he notices a guy walking into the shower room of the lounge carrying all three of his suitcases. And then he disappears in there for 20 minutes. And so he's, a, the, the janitor we find out is actually an ex-security guard who's been sort of trained to be vigilant. He notices this guy just disappeared in there for 20 minutes waiting to clean it, getting more and more suspicious. Door opens, guy comes out, janitor goes in there, and the first thing he notices is that nothing in the shower room has been touched. The shower is dry, sink is dry, towels are still folded, toilet seat down hasn't been touched. So, okay, now he's really on the alert, and he rummages around looking. He doesn't know what he's looking for. He rummages around. He finds in a diaper bin in a corner of the room at the bottom is an egg carton, cardboard egg carton with a single um, red dyed chicken egg inside <laughs> so he is completely mystified as to what this could be but being this vigilant janitor trained to look out for terrorism possible terrorism or other crimes at an airport he summons the counterterrorism police who arrive on the scene grab this passenger take him into a room, interrogate him, strip search him. As he removes his clothes for them, they find um, hospital gauze wrapped around his abdomen and inside the gauze are woolen socks and inside the socks are um, 14 eggs. And they're eggs that these guys have never, they're strangely patterned red and brown mottled speckled eggs. 
smaller than chicken eggs, but you know, so they don't know what they're looking at. And they ask him what he's what what he's got, what these are. He says they're first thing he says is that they're duck eggs. And they ask him why on earth are you carrying raw fourteen raw duck eggs strapped around your belly? And he tells them that um, his chiropractor recommended that he wear raw eggs on his body to train him to keep his muscles taut and strengthen his back, lower back. So at that point, they just throw up their hands and they get a hold of the country's most famous bird crime expert, who is the hero of the story. Andy McWilliam is his name, uh, who gets involved in these quickly deduces just from the phone call that the guy is lying and makes his way quickly to Birmingham airport where he within 24 hours meets this passenger face to face and begins to draw out his his story. Does it give too much away if I say that you met this person, this uh, thief at some point? I don't think it, well, maybe it does, but you've said it anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, this, it took about um, uh, eight months. I mean, I was very quickly able to get his phone number and uh, was able to reach him. At this point, you have to realize he was a fugitive from justice. Uh, remember, as I said at the beginning, the magazine, Times of London piece had come out. It said he had jumped bail, but I wasn't sure where he was. Quickly, I ascertained that he was in South Africa, where he spent most of his life, I'd say, you know, many years of his life. Anyway, he's in his late 50s now. And anyway, we, uh, uh, I talked to him very briefly on the phone and asked if I could come down and see him. And he said that he was just been diagnosed with prostate cancer and didn't want to talk and wasn't feeling up for talking and basically denied that he was anywhere near this villainous figure that the media had made him out to be. So mean, you know, okay, I, I waited I, and, and I began to pursue his story, not really knowing if he would ever talk to me, presuming that I, he wouldn't. I just wanted to find out everything I could and work around him. And then, you know, about eight months later, my uh, following his trail took me down to Southern Africa, to Zimbabwe, where he was, where he grew up then known as Rhodesia, and then to South Africa, where I basically, well, I reached out to his brother, who was a perfectly reputable uh, journalist editor. I don't know what role the brother played, but within hours, hours before I had to get on a flight for home from South Africa, I reached Jeffrey and he agreed to meet me. He gave me the directions and, you know, I, I got into an Uber and met him in a shopping mall in Pretoria. And by that time, um, you know, I had many, many questions after pursuing his story for so many months yeah. that it was quite an interesting encounter. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, since you've actually been in the room with him, if we go back to that original story of him getting arrested at that airport and he gets pulled into an interrogation room and he's saying, my chiropractor told me to do this. Mm -hmm. How believable would they have thought he was? I think the counterterrorism police knew that he was, I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous story. I mean, he's a very good liar, you know, and he's very good at sort of, com I, there are many examples of him coming up on the spot with stories to explain his actions. But um, this one was just so crazy and ludicrous that they just weren't buying it. And then, um, you know, he tried the same thing out on Andy McWilliam the next day. And, you know, McWilliam just eviscerated him, you know. Let's talk, let's talk about that National Wildlife Crime Unit. Yeah. What kind of an organization is that? Yeah, so the U.S. has the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a big bureaucracy. I'm not dismissing it. I mean, it's just, it's a big organization with a lot of investigators. There was really nothing equivalent, which is strange because Britain, Great Britain generally has some of the, you know, they really care about their animals, especially their birds. 
but they kind of left the work to be done by by local police and also charities like the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which actually was doing most of the investigative work on these on bird crimes, people who you know raid birds from nests or whatever, or shoot birds or, or violate the protective laws that um, Britain has imposed. So in 2006, this kind of visionary police officer with a background in zoology decided that the country really needed a national a wildlife crime fighting unit. And he saw lots of links between, you know, the wildlife thieves and drug traffickers and human traffickers, that they were all sort of the same kind of people and that it was a huge underground industry. In addition to being to often extremely cruel to animals, um, there was a lot of theft and destruction of, of protected species. So he created in 2006, he talked Parliament into um, funding this organization, not a lot of money, like less than a million pounds or, you know, one point three million or so at the time. But it was enough to hire a few investigators, set up an office. These guys were all retired policemen who would go and really act as consultants for police departments around the country who were dealing with wildlife crime because the ordinary police officer doesn't, as those counterterrorism guys face, they, they don't know what they're facing with wildlife crime. And so tips would come in and so they would be referred to NWCU and then Andy McWilliam or one of his counterparts would come onto the scene and sort of assess what the situation was. And there's an incredible variety, as I discovered, of, of wildlife crime that these guys just became very uh, sophisticated in combating and, and recognizing. Starting out with you seeing this article and deciding that you're going to go after this story in a deeper way, you certainly lucked out with having two very interesting central people, both your good guy and your thief. And, and the thing that's so interesting about the thief is you would think maybe that he's doing this just for money. But he has this huge history in his family of wanting these close encounters with these birds of prey. That's tr very true. He grew up in southern, what was then southern Rhodesia, uh, now Zimbabwe, basically in the bush in a town called Bulawayo. I mean, he could go and just really inside the town and outside the town. It was just surrounded by incredible wildlife and... There was a national park 20 miles away where the greatest concentration of greatest variety and concentration of raptors, of birds of prey are in the world. So this was his um, playground. And his father was an, a naturalist, self-styled naturalist, but also was a kind of uh, dark figure as well who loved animals, loved insects, birds, every collected animals, but also uh, plundered the wild. And he, he enlisted his son in a scheme that lasted for many years to go and register themselves on bird watching projects, bird surveys run by the Ornithological Society, the local Ornithological Society, and using that cover story to identify nest sites all over the park and then steal eggs, either for their personal collection or as was never proven, but was suspected to sell them to collectors in the United... At that time, this was the 80s, in the United... And late 70s and early 80s, in the United Kingdom. So even from the time this guy was a teenager, Jeffrey Lindstrom, he was climbing up trees, scaling cliffs, raiding nests. You know, on the one hand, helping his father write these scholarly studies for bird uh, ornithological journals about the behavior of birds in incubation and at the same time stealing protected species out of nests in a national park, which is a major no-no. Early age, 
ethically dubious father setting a very a very dodgy example and there was in fact a trial in Bulawayo in 1983 1984 so early on actually had a criminal record from the time he was 21 and instead of kind of forcing Lendrum to clean up his act it actually seems to have just been the beginning of a slippery slope into deeper crazier more ambitious crimes do you get a sense of how those two things fit together in his head, that sort of love of this creature, but also this destructive behavior. I do actually, because he, he always rationalized it to other people, including friends, including police. And I think himself that he was actually doing these birds a favor. The idea being that raptors live this kind of very difficult life in the wild certain extent this is true many of them don't survive there are fierce battles for territory inside matobo park that national park i mentioned the black eagle which is really sort of the most admired beautiful eagle in the world the greatest concentration in the world is in matobo park anyway 60 percent of it according to, to the bird survey 60 percent of the chicks don't survive past a year so lendrum and and you have similar statistics really for other wild birds of prey all over the planet you know they're operating in harsh environments there uh, there's fierce competition for food they're facing natural uh, you know human enemies and so he would say well i'm taking these birds i'm rescuing the birds to his closest friends who knew what he was doing he would say listen i'm taking them to the middle east i'm turning them over to these wealthy sheikhs they're protect these are incredible you know they have hospitals that are better than human hospitals they have room to fly they're being fed they have these pampered lives i mean and they're you know guaranteed of survival to others outside it, he would never admit that he was actually sending those birds taking those birds to the middle east he would just simply say um you know taking them and i'm raising them myself or i'm enter putting them into a ornithological uh, reserve uh, where they'll be uh, nurtured and protected so I'm doing the birds a favor. That was what his argument was. Mm-hmm. And for you getting to know him, I mean, obviously, as a journalist, you reserve judgment. But would you say a person like that deserves to be in jail? Like, let's let's say uh, that, that what he's telling you is what, how he honestly feels. I'm trying to save these birds. Yeah, first of all, I don't. Well, I'm not sure I buy the argument. I think it's a I think it's um Uh, you know, maybe a story that he's told himself so often that maybe he sort of believes it. But I've also talked to people who dealt with him, like a guy who offered him his home after he got out of prison in the UK, who lived with, you know, Lendrum lived with him for many months uh, while waiting to return to South Africa. There was like a parole system. You have to stay in the UK for half of your, once you're released from prison for a certain amount of time. Anyway, and like they'd be sitting around a hot tub drinking beer and Lendrum would be joking about how much the price that he was expecting to fetch from the peregrine falcons that he was on taking to Dubai before he got arrested. So, I mean, this was a guy with mixed motives, to say the least. He also seems to be somewhat addicted because he keeps getting caught and doing it anyway. Yeah, he was addicted. I mean, I do think that to, to a certain extent, he he loved birds. He was fascinated by birds. He knew everything about falcons. He had incredible, incredibly arcane detail he could recognize birds in the sex through binoculars from half a mile away i mean he just he just knew his knew his birds of prey but you know it's understandable he grew up with these animals yeah there are he broke laws i mean he repeatedly he's a repeat offender he knew completely well that there are layers of 
legislation by the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species that make this stuff illegal. The British government, every country on earth, 183 signatories of the CITES uh, treaty. And then you have all these countries with their own laws. Scientists have studied these animals. They rank them according to what kind of danger they're facing. The raptors, the birds of prey that he sees are considered other, there is some argument, but they are considered under CITES to be the among the most endangered species on the planet. And Landrum completely blithely ignored that, and he stole them. And his arguments about, uh, oh, protecting, you know, saving them from death in the wild. Well, the wild is where they come from, and the wild is where they belong. And that whatever their supposed fate might be, um, I mean, that's just a, a dubious rationalization for what he was yeah. really doing. I think he deserved to be in jail. So you do get a little philosophical in this book as well. One of the things that you get into that I thought maybe I'd have you explain, you also talk about not just for the right the rights of that bird to be left alone by this guy, but that we, the rest of us, have the right to get whatever pleasure we get by having these other living creatures in the world yeah. around us. I you mean, know, Rachel Car- that's Ra- really Rachel Carson's argument, not mine, but something that I can understand. I mean, basically... I forget who else I quote in there. Um, what's his? Uh, the, yeah, Jonathan Franzen's in one part. But also the uh, the um, uh, Charles Darwin's contemporary in the study of evolution, who had a very powerful quote about animals basically being entitled to live their own. You know, this planet was not necessarily made for man, and species have a right to live to live in the wild, and humans should not be intruding in, on that. And there's no uh, unwritten law that says that these animals are to be possessed, are there for the sake of human beings or to be possessed by human beings. And um, I think that Andy McWilliam, he may not be the most articulate guy in the world, but I think intuitively he understood that and he really kind of took great offense at the, the actions of many of the people whom he arrested, who really kind of ignored, failed to respect the wild and failed to respect the right of wild animals to um, exist independent of human beings. One of the things that has kind of become a joking mantra, or at least is almost a personal mantra for me, that if you're getting too much in your head, what you should do is you should go outside and you should see what the birds are doing Mm -hmm. because they're living something completely different from whatever's going on in you, you know. They're in their own sphere, exactly. Exactly, and one of the things that you said was that when you went on this reporting mission, we can call it a quest since that was last week's thing, that one of the unexpected outcomes of doing that was that you yourself noticed the birds more. I'm not sure it was that unexpected, but I think, um, yeah, I did notice the birds more. I think maybe my appreciation in the way that even now, like a couple of years later, it's still there and it's kind of become much more a part of my, of who I am. Maybe that part is unexpected. Yeah. I mean, my trips with the National Wildlife Crime Unit into the cliffs of Wales, that was one of the first expeditions I took to look for peregrine falcon nests to kind of retrace Lendrum steps. And that was the beginning of it. And then I, when I went down, just completely unrelated assignment to the marshes of Iraq a few months later, after I started reporting the book, I just, I did find myself being incredibly more attuned to the bird life. It's, it's beautiful wetlands down there. And there's an incredible variety of birds. So I pro- I would have been impressed anyway, because I was immersed in the middle of my own bird book project. I felt highly more sensitized to what I was seeing. And that really has carried through to this day. I spend the summers on Martha's Vineyard, another like great wetland environment, incredible variety of birds. That's become sort of one of the great pleasures 
of uh, going to the vineyard now that wasn't necessarily there at the beginning. The bird observations, the ospreys and the Canadian geese and just, you know, hawks of various species of hawks. It's a pretty amazing place that I, I definitely didn't think of it like that five years ago. So what would you say it's added to your life? Has it made you just more aware of the natural world in general? Or? Yeah, I think so. Just they're beautiful to look at. The variety, it just reminds you of the just incredible variety of, of the natural world, uh, the richness of the natural world. It's uh, made me more attuned to my environment, which is always a good thing. Do you know how um, your, your hero and your thief in this book respond to this? Have they read it? Um, Andy has ha- has a copy of it. I sent it to him. The only thing I heard from him so far was that, uh, well, there's just there was an incident that I described in, in the sort of biographical sketch where I mentioned that his wife to be, when she found out he was a cop in their first meeting, she reacted with sort of a grimace. And he asked, don't you like cops? And she said, no, ever since she'd been arrested for driving on a a motorcycle with just a learner's permit. She's had no love of the cops. So it turns out that she, in fact, wasn't arrested. She was just fined. And she was mortified now that there was a book (laughs) saying that she had been arrested. And so now she's like, I mean, (laughs) she told him, he asked her if he wanted dinner that night. And she said, you know, just bread and water will be enough. So, so she's been like on his case now about being portrayed as this as this jailbird, so to speak. That's the only reaction I've had so far from him. So anyway. And what about Jeff? Jeff, I haven't. Uh, Jeff's still in, in jail on his latest bird charge, bird thieving conviction, and is possibly going to be extradited to Brazil. I assume that... He's gotten a copy of the book. I have to assume that, but I don't really expect to hear from him. That's always the challenge of writing about a real person is what are they going to think? Well, I'm not sitting sitting around worried that he's not going to like the book. I mean, clearly he's not going to like the book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it is a fascinating book. It's called The Falcon Thief, A True Tale of Adventure, Treachery, and the Hunt for the Perfect Bird. Your publicist is going to give our listeners a copy away. Uh, for free. Yeah, yeah, is that right? That's right. And follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Tiffany will tell you how you can win. We usually come up with something fun. And I did want to ask, just before you go, since you've been an expat in Berlin for so long, how did you end up there? So I ended up there. I was there as an, I was a Newsweek magazine bureau chief for many years, and one of my stops along the way and 20 years ago was Berlin. And that's where I met my wife, Then we moved on, and eight years later, we returned to Berlin after I left Newsweek, became a freelancer. I just wanted to kind of continue this international correspondent uh, brand that I had, because I figured as a freelance writer, it's a tough world out there. You got branding yourself always helps. So it was going to be a few years, and then my marriage, unfortunately, uh, broke up. Uh, We had two kids. So I kind of had was basically stuck in Berlin with a couple of kids that I didn't want to live away from. And then ultimately, I ended up meeting somebody else. And now we have a child, a second German partner. And so I can live pretty much anywhere in the world to, to do what I do. And, and, and there are many advantages to being in the middle of Europe because a lot of the places I go for this book, for instance, much of it played out in the UK or Southern Africa and the Middle East as well. So it was much easier to do that book based in Berlin than it would have been based in New York or whatever, or California, Washington State, whatever. 
That's for sure. I've flown to South Africa once, yeah. and it just was a long. With, just dealing with the you know the time zone changes yeah. alone. That's those killers. You know, you would lose a couple of days on either end just trying to get back to normal. None of these journeys I took required more. I mean, really, one hour time adjustment. You know. And were you a person who always wanted to live somewhere else? Yeah, I, I wanted. I mean, I really enjoyed my career as a foreign correspondent for Newsweek. It lasted fifteen years. I lived in like every. I lived on every continent except Australia and New Zealand and, um, uh, and Antarctica. <laughs> so uh, no Antarctica Bureau, unfortunately. Um, but I actually at this point did not expect that I would still uh, be living the expat life. I figured I'd make my way back to the States by now. This is just a string of circumstances that you can't foresee turn me into sort of a permanent expat. I think what's great about it, especially for my kids, is that it's really easy to have like uh, one foot planted in the United States and one foot planted in, in Europe. They've all gone to a great American-German international school. There's a little league. There's a big expat community. So there's that element. Plus, we spend um, you know a month every summer in the States. And they, my kids have grown up, uh, well, my older one, my, especially my older one, he's uh, 18, uh, with a very clear sense of his American identity. And I try to inculcate that in the other kids because I think that part of their identity is important. It's just a very friendly, amenable easy city i mean a little bit like i mean like seattle it has a, a kind of a i mean it's landlocked obviously but it has a kind of a um a relaxed vibe you know and they have beautiful lakes there's some actually some natural beauty there people have an image of berlin as being a kind of a gray city which it is for three months a year in the winter but it actually has like fantastic seasonal changes it has wonderful lakes forests. it's it's there's a lot it has a lot going for it mm-hmm. The book is The Falcon Thief, Joshua Hammer. Thanks for stopping by my house. Yeah, thanks for having me over. It was fun to talk about this with you. Uh, and until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from our listeners. Listeners that step up and donate are the listeners that keep this show alive. I have just 18 of these wonderful magnets left. Help us reach our goal of $1,000 a month on Patreon by becoming a sustaining donor there. Just search for the Bittersweet Life podcast. You'll get this magnet. You'll get a thank you note. You'll get other wonderful prizes as well. Or make a one-time donation at thebittersweetlife.net. There are links in the show notes. Tip your podcaster and keep the show you love alive. <laughs>